0: Do you, do you go? Uh, yeah. Do I go? Do you go? I'm going to go. Hey there, Three Song Story listeners. Uh, uh Mike Canary here. Uh, Mike Canary, if you've seen the... Uh sock puppet, um, which if you haven't, I encourage you not to. Uh, Seriously, though, uh, we are just taking a minute out of your time to ask for you to support WGCU Public Radio. It is the radio station where we make three song stories. Uh, It is the infrastructure that makes it all possible. And you know, when I'm not making three song stories, I'm either working here or listening to it or supporting it. So join me Call 1-800-533-9428. And if you want to support us, you can also go to wgcu.org slash radio uninterrupted. Uh, There's a drive that we do to try to raise uh, dollars for station programming where we we don't interrupt huge portions of shows. Instead, we just remind people that we do need money to pay for the shows um, that we buy from NPR and, and other networks. So if you appreciate this show or if you're a WGCU fan and you appreciate any of the shows that you would hear on the radio in Southwest Florida or maybe you or maybe elsewhere if you listen on the app or the website, uh, call 800-533-9428, that's 800-533-WGCU, and just uh, you know, let us know that the shows that you listen to are worth a little bit of your money, whatever you can give us. Uh, and, you know, we have two different versions of each episode. We have the short version that only has the um, the sort of tightened up, truncated, edited version of the song that we put out there for downloads on uh, iTunes and places like that. And then we have the full version where you get to hear the whole song on our website. And the only reason we're able to do that is because we're here at a public radio station that has the right kind of licensing for that. So if you listen to the full versions of these episodes that have all this diversity of songs and genres, have we had jazz yet, Richard? Uh, we have not had, strictly speaking, a jazz piece. That's I don't, interesting. I, don't it think. Just, I, I was going through the spectrum in my head, and I realized there's no jazz yet. Anyway, that, I, I diverge. 1-800-533-9428 is the way to support WGCU. It is our public radio station here in southwest Florida. And if you live elsewhere, consider supporting it as well because, you know, public radio is important. You're getting dangerously close to a jazz plus jazz equals jazz joke. I was trying to head that way, so thank you, Richard, for (laughs) teeing it up. Okay, everybody call in now.
1: One, two, three.
0: Welcome to Three Song Stories, the place where music lovers come to tell their stories through the lens of the songs that have been the soundtracks of their lives. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Today's guest is Jim Brock. Jim's been teaching poetry, literature, and writing at Florida Gulf Coast University since 1998 after having been something of an academic Kelly girl before that, his bio says, teaching at universities in Indiana, Tennessee, Idaho, Pennsylvania, and Miami before landing in Fort Myers. By the way, I had to Google Kelly girl and you might need to too. A nationally award-winning poet, Jim's now retired from the poetry writing gig to pursue life on the stage. His current projects involve playwriting and performing he's a founding member of ghost bird theater company in fort myers from my experience if jim's involved with something you can rest assured it's cool a native Idahoan, he's a big fan of matthew barney boise state football and peekaboo street i do believe that was the first time i ever said the word Idahoan. Hey there, Jim. How goes it? <laughs> great, great. It's
1: Idahoan.
0: Idahoan? Yeah, so I'm Googled so sorry. <laughs> I'm
1: sorry. <laughs> but I
0: Googled it. Well, Did I typo it when I Googled no, no. <laughs> it? Are there, are there alternate sayings of it?
1: Or oh, it... absolutely not. No, Idahoan. You know what? Because <laughs> I'm going to be I saying would... that a bit today. So Okay, yeah, 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 well, it's yeah. funny because,
0: you know, I, I would say that I could fix that in post, but I can't. <laughs> we're, we're good. Here good talking perfect. About beautiful. So, ever write a poem about potatoes? Or perhaps a oh, play? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so oh, that's yeah, totally a thing. Yeah, that's totally a thing. Potatoes is accurate, yes. Uh, well, like what?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want to dig around in this oh, Idahoan. Well, Ida- uh, I- Idahoan?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I grew, I grew up in Boise. There, there isn't a lot of potatoes. I potato- didn't say it right yeah, there, right? Yeah, yeah, Boise. yeah, Boise, yeah, yeah. I Googled yeah, yeah, that yeah, too. Very good, okay. very good. The S, um, <laughs> you pass. Um, no, uh, growing up in Boise, we had uh, uh uh, Jack Simplot, the potato king, and he had a big house on the big hill that overlooked Boise, and uh, he got wealthy uh, by learning how to fast-freeze uh, french fry potatoes, and that, that was the direct line for McDonald's french fries. So there's, you know, there's all that, yeah.
0: So do you remember any of your uh, Idaho uh, potato poems, or uh,
1: perhaps oh. a, a couplet? Oh my gosh, I had a, I had a I had a series called uh, Mr. Potato Head. Oh. And Mr. It, and Mr. Potato Head had, had all these adventures um, that uh, really were, were very autobiographical, uh, so he was a persona for me. Um, very nice. At what but, age was that? Oh, this was, uh, this was. oh my God. I was a grown man. I was like 23, <laughs> 24 doing that. Okay, I was, okay. I was in Indiana and just being homesick and writing these Mr. Potato Head poems. That's fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay, oh what was the musical background of your childhood? Um, well... If we're talking about my childhood, I, I, I kind of grew up in a musical desert. Uh, neither one of my parents really did music. That I don't remember my mom singing to me, for instance. I know you've had guests talk about that. And, um, you know, my dad couldn't even whistle. Um, but... Uh, uh, but they, but they believed in in educating us and exposing us to things that they weren't necessarily accustomed to, so we all got, uh, you know, when we were old enough, we got our own little record players or okay. cassette decks. Um, we did have a house radio, but it was always turned on to uh, listen to sports. Okay. Um, and so my my main education came through my siblings. I'm the youngest of four. We were all born within four years. Oh wow. Of one another. So you know, just one year after another after another, and uh, so uh, I I grew up with the influence of my siblings.
0: Um, and so what was being played on the record players if you guys had your own
1: little record players okay. where did that music come from Well uh we we didn't get those until we were a little bit older so uh probably not until I'm about 8 and my oldest brother is about 12 do we start acquiring all of that Uh and uh we each each sibling I have three other siblings and we each had our own different musical tastes. so my oldest brother was probably the most conventional he had, of course, we had the Beatles and 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 all of that, but he had like Bread and Chicago and uh, groups like that right. that were very very white. <laughs> at the other end, at the other extreme was my sister, and she had she had all the Motown records uh-huh. and the and, and rhythms and blues, and so it would be like the OJ's or Temptations, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, um, you know, and that's kind of interesting growing up in Boise and getting a little bit of exposure to that. And then uh, my brother Carl, who's a year older than I, he he was he was kind of into early what would become progressive rock. Uh, so I rem- I associate him also with um, so like Yes and and um, uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer, uh, but it, and and then Tubular Bells. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he had he had the eight track uh, system, so you know I I, I remember those. Uh, almost the colors of the cassettes right. that he had more than the tapes themselves.
0: So, what did you glean out of those three different variables <sighs> well, in terms of your own then playlist in your childhood?
1: Well, we all—I uh, think we all purposely went our own uh, directions with right. it. So, you know, they—they they all claimed they all had first dibs on stuff, um, and I can remember liking really young groups like uh, the an, uh yeah, uh, the animals. Uh, and, and then a little bit later, I was into more uh, folk music, so Neil Young, Bob Dylan, uh, Joni Mitchell, you know, those, those, those people. Uh, and then kind of veering off into um, sort of silly rock and roll, so Paul Revere and the Raiders, and, you know, I mean, just fake groups, the Monkees, you know, things like that.
0: They were real and fake. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, <laughs> they, they were great, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, when did you start writing poetry? Um well the first uh, I can I c I actually can remember writing um um something like uh song lyrics that were, you know, uh lyrics that were based on uh pre existing songs. And I was probably uh seven or eight when I wrote my first one and it was it was supposed to be to the tune of the Oscar or Meyer Wiener song. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, I wish I was an Oscar Mayer wiener. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, uh, oh, I'm glad I'm not Richard M. Nixon. That's a job I'd hate to do because if I were Richard M. Nixon, I'd have to hang around with Spiro Agnew. That's like – Ken uh, Rudin level. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, so I was a political nerd and grew up in a pretty political family and all that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: um, uh, so at what point did you start taking poetry seriously? Because you got to the point oh, where you—, you right, know, right, right, right.
1: It's—yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, I mean, I, I went to graduate school and got in it. Master of Fine Arts degree in creative writing at Indiana University. But like growing up, and, you were you know, always writing
0: poetry, like as a high school student? I,
1: I, I really got serious as a high school student. I had a really cool uh, creative writing teacher, Maggie Ward. Uh, this would have been 1975. And she brought in Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run and just said, this will blow you away. She bought my uh, bought me a, a copy of... of um, Richard Brodigan's poetry because it was sort of hormonal and, yeah. and spoke to, you know, a 16-year-old angsty kind of my, kid. I channel the universe through him sometimes. Yeah, yeah. she gave me his copy of uh, Loading Mercury with a Pitchfork, and he writes these very irreverent, funny, three-line poems and um, just, just just a lot of fun and, and, and a, good, a good starting point for an aspiring poet. Uh, and it was really through her that I really started to read poetry and... Um, uh, build on that uh, and and really begin to identify myself as a poet. And in fact, one of the songs that we'll be talking about will really go into this. Do you uh, play any instruments or do you sing? That's not a thing for you. I played the trombone for two years. <laughs> i uh, I was in the fifth grade, and you get to choose your own musical instrument, right uh, And I thought, I'm never going to be good enough to be uh, herb Albert. Uh, But maybe I could be in his band. And so I thought, you know, the trombone would be a good support instrument. Yeah, yeah. My daughter plays trombone. Oh, my she, God. Oh, my God. I, I hated it. She kind of loves it. Oh, good. Good good for her. It's a beautiful instrument, but the carrying the, the case, oh, my gosh, it just uh, made me angry. Uh, getting on the bus and having this huge monstrous thing that uh, prevented anyone from sitting next to me. I mean, it was a, like, a, it was like a, a warning sign. This guy likes the trombone. <laughs> you know, it wasn't just taking up the space. Uh, uh, how did you wind up in Florida? Uh, jobs jobs yeah 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 uh the the kelly girl thing you know kelly girls were these temps for hire mm-hmm. and and uh and uh i had um i had my first real teaching gig as a pro- as a professor at a school in tennessee and uh that went south i'll probably talk about this a little bit later too and uh and then went to uh, these temporary jobs where you'd have one-year or three-year contracts teaching full-time at these universities, and you would hope that you could get your yeah. your foot in the door. Uh, and uh, I went to, um, from the school in Tennessee, I went to East Stroudsburg, was there for a year, was at Idaho State for three years, uh, was at the University of Miami for one year. And um, at Miami, I heard about this new university at FGCU and and uh that's what brought me to Fort Myers uh it became a permanent position and were you part of the founding staff i mean it's I w- I, pretty close I to the very close. beginning it was pretty close i was i was a i was in their first year of hires gotcha. after the university, university started so i i don't have the founding designation right right but you've pretty much been here oh yeah yeah I, yeah I
0: started here as a student in the summer of 99
1: okay so i was yeah, around yeah. during those yeah, three yeah. building yeah, days yeah, too. yeah 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 um,
0: yeah okay let's get
1: to your first song okay Okay. Um, the first song is, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll first just mention what the song is. Sure, yeah. And, you, you can tell the okay. story,
0: you can tell the song,
1: you can uh, do is, anything uh, you want to is, do. It's is Melanie's version of Ruby Tuesday, uh, which came out around 1970, 71, I think. Um, uh, all, all these uh, songs that I'm going to be talking about are unified by theme. They're about my identity as a writer, as a poet, and I'm going through a transition in my life. Um, they're all connected to, um, uh, well, they're all physically the same. They, they are they are all cassette uh, tapes uh, that were played in a car. So I'll talk about the car. I identify them with very specific stretches of road. So I'll talk about that. Um, and so, well, with this first one with Melanie, um, this goes back to my probably in my junior year in high school, 1975, 76. And um, yes, I'm I'm beginning to write poetry then. But growing up, my uh, academic uh, star was in math. I was was this awful math nerd. I was taking these accelerated courses and testing all that. I was being tutored by um, these um, uh, uh, students at Boise State. Um, and I was on a trajectory to be probably going to Caltech for my undergraduate degree and working at the jet propulsion lab and be an engineer or something like that. Um, and I loved math because I was so good at it. It wasn't a set of problems to be solved. It was a language. Right. It was, a, it was this beautiful, beautiful language, and I understood it as a language. And I liked it theoretically more than in practice. I mean, I did the problem solving and everything like that. That was that was that was great fun. And I excelled at that, but it was about this language quality to it. Um, but I about the time I'm 16 or 17 I'm beginning to get burned out on that. I'm looking at a career, oh, you're going to be an engineer. And it seemed like uh, I mean there's nothing wrong with building things, and I rely on engineers for everything in my life <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. I have a total respect but but for me personally, it was just like uh, uh it it seemed dreary um, I had two really, really good friends in high school, and they were both uh, math nerds, science nerds, but they were also interested in other things. My friend Brad wrote poetry, he wanted to be an editor. Uh, my other friend, Greg, he was this rock climber, and we would get in, in Greg's um, uh, Datsun pickup truck. It was probably five, six years old. So it was actually, for a high school kid, it was like, you know, it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. He had a cassette deck in it, and we would drive out in the country. And on these long drives, uh, by country, I mean we'd either go to the Idaho desert. Um, you're, you're near Nevada, so you're near the great Nevada basin. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's semi-arid desert, or you head north and you go into the mountains. And you know, depending upon our moods, we turn right, go to desert, turn left, go up to the mountains, and we'd go on these uh, long weekend drives. We'd have sleeping bags, a six-pack of beer uh, in the back, uh, Greg's climbing gear, and we would we would go out and we would we talk about girls and. Our, our our aspirations and how are we going to get the hell out of Boise, Idaho? You know, mm-hmm. uh, we all we all, we all knew that there was something uh, a little bit better, you know. And it, I mean, very um, very much being a teenager. Absolutely, you know? You know, yeah. you're just you're just you just you just feel stuck where you are, and so we we would listen to these songs as we traveled, um, and um, for this song. Uh we all, I had I had a cassette deck of Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits, so you know, Maggie's Farm would be one that we would sing to. And uh my friend uh Brad had, you know, Spring Scenes Born to Run, so Thunder Road, we would be singing that. And then Greg had this uh you know, Greatest Hits of 1971, you know, it was a compilation. And 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 he had this song, uh, Ruby Tuesday by Melanie. And we would all sing that really loud, like we were ter- teenage girls in the worst possible way. <laughs> we were all 12 year old girls, and just singing that, and we'd be crying, you know, and and um, we'd be driving up uh, this road, Black's Creek Canyon Road. Uh, it's up in the mountains where there are these one- lane logging roads, and we would just k- get higher and higher in elevation, and we'd be driving at night, and so you, there you know there wasn't any um, you know, there were there, there wasn't any uh, uh, lines on the road to, to, to mark where you would fall off and die. There, were, there weren't right. any guardrails <laughs> or anything like that. Just this black, black, uh, beautiful, um, moonless, uh, Milky Way, starred Laden sky. So it was uh like this heavens above us that was just immense, and then below us was the was the uh basin uh, the desert basin full of sage, and it kind of it kind of shimmered with the starlight it was that black and and you know there i I realized singing the song um that the whole math thing just wasn't going to do it that um uh, I, would, I would never take another math class again. I would, I, I would devote myself to trying to be an artist, whether that was going to be a writer or something else. I, I just knew that I would have to go in that kind of direction. And so this song by Melanie represents that to me.
0: That moment?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Did it feel exhilarating? Did it feel scary? Uh, it, was, um, it was peaceful. I mean, I don't, don't, I'm not, I'm not a very peaceful person. I'm kind of like this bundle of, 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 of really angry nerves. Right. Uh, But, but, but with that, it was like, oh, well, this is almost zen-like. And, and there was, there was, there was this muted pain with it um, that um, was maybe low-grade depression. You know, there could be, there could be that. uh, But it was also, it, 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 it really felt right. All right. Well, let's hear it. This is Ruby
0: Tuesday by Melanie. From her 1970 album, A Candle's in the
1: Rain.
0: So was that song what happened to be playing when you made the pivot, or was that song a
1: catalyst for it? It was concurrent with it. It wasn't—I um, mean, I, I, the other songs I mentioned could have easily been ones I chose for that, that were part of that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it was an affirmation of— Pivot, so probably came after that, and it was just this. Um, and and you know, the Rolling Stones version, it's um, you know, it's the 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 choices that Melanie makes in terms of the production aren't really terribly different. Uh, but with Mick Jagger singing it, it's kind of snarky. It's like mm-hmm. uh, you you expected that he did Ruby Tuesday, you know, and and, and Melanie, it's like I am her and. Um, I think that's why uh, the sincerity of her singing that was something that um, spoke to me at that time, too, of, of this sort of uh, cautionary tale of, of what your life could be if you didn't pursue what you really loved. Yeah, well, exactly. Right. I was listening to right. it
0: through the lens of what you were saying, yeah. and <clears throat> it almost sounds like, you know, the line that nothing gained, nothing lost. Right, right. It's almost like maybe the stakes aren't high enough in engineering Ex- in terms of being a human being.
1: Right, right. Well, Or we're,
0: putting yourself out there, taking risks right. for right. what you want to be. Right,
1: right. Well, uh, uh, it really was a, a leap into doing something I didn't know I would be very good at. Right, right. You know, yeah, because you weren't, you, you were good at what you were doing. Right, 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 right. And 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 it was, it was almost preset. So there was, it was almost like death there.
0: So what was your first step down that road? Like, what was your first active movement toward that pursuit? Oh, um,
1: uh, probably uh, going to uh, college, and I was first. There was still a little, a little bit of practical side to me. Uh, I was. Going into environmental sciences, environmental economics, um, because that seems to be a little bit truer than. Right. Um, still some numbers in there. Still numbers in there, <laughs> uh, and uh, but I took this one English class with uh, Dick Widmeyer, and we read uh, a Virginia Woolf novel, and it was it just uh, hooked me, and and I loved reading poetry. I I was learning to love literature at that point more broadly uh, and so I got hooked into that and was really in college where I started to read a lot and then write on my own a lot, having some friends that I would share my stuff with and and and, and, and pursuing it beyond just as a hobby but as something to aspire to. I was reading real poets, a wide range of them and that made that, that gave me some direction. At what point? If ever, I guess. Um, did you
0: feel like you were like, I've made the right decision. This is something I can do. This is something that I can do as well as I could have done that other thing that wasn't right. doing it for me.
1: Um, probably um, probably in that transition between going to college and going to a graduate program, because um, I really didn't know what I was doing when I was applying for these graduate programs in career writing. I barely discovered that that was a possibility. Um, and so this is, you know, 1980, 81 when I'm doing that. And um, I, I I think seeing that as a uh, opportunity to go into like an apprentice program where you'd spend three years where you would do – you were really responsible for nothing but doing your poetry and teaching a couple of classes uh, and, and you – you were with these other writers who were making the same kind of sacrifice in their lives you know quitting jobs uh putting their uh lives on hold for these 3 years and that's where i was in this kind of hot house of other young writers you know growing these green shoots and everything was amplified and exciting and i knew that's yes i'm in the right place even even if i knew uh, even if i didn't know if i was ever going to publish a book or anything right. like that Um, So it was a pretty exciting, heady time for me then. So when did you become involved in theater? Oh, um, much, much later. I... um <laughs> well, I, I acted in high school. Um, that was like one play one time. And what then, were you in? What? Oh, um, it's in there it, somewhere. It was, yeah, it is in there somewhere. <laughs> I'm pulling it up. It was, uh, it was a, uh, it was the Spoon River Anthology. Uh-huh. Uh, Edgar Lee Masters, and there were all these little vignettes of, uh-huh. you know, uh, two students or a single student doing uh, a recitation of the poem. But we created drama out of that. And I had one poem that I had to recite, and um, it it didn't really take with me the acting thing. Right. It was it, okay. was, it, was, it was it was it was pure pain. And it was an and, a class assignment. Yes. Okay. It was it was it was awful. Um, <laughs> so
0: so then yeah, flash forward. So to... flash
1: forward to uh, this would have been two thousand eight. Okay. At, so, at, at FGCU, okay. Um, my good friend Barry Cavan had, had I was I rem- okay had had floated the idea that you know you know Jim you might. You might like this, uh, and so he had written this play for the FGCU Theater Lab uh, called *The Living Blog*, and I played a psychiatrist in it—an evil psychiatrist. So there's a little bit of typecasting. He probably thought that this wasn't a big leap for me because, you know, this person obviously had a doctorate, had to be kind of academic and 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 uh, uh, self-centered in some form or fashion. <laughs> so it was it was easy, um, but but I. I I totally bombed. I I uh, the I think was the second show. The first show I think I did okay, and then then the second show I completely forgot, pages and pages. You just blanked. Blanked out, uh, and I became petrified. I couldn't move. I started cussing on stage in front of people. In front of people. <laughs> I mean it wasn't breaking character. It was like, you know, they were they were seeing me have a full scale panic attack, you know. I was and and my poor uh, uh, co star, uh, Caitlin Gravel was just there looking at me and she couldn't she couldn't throw me a line or help me out in any form or fashion because I wasn't getting anything. Um, and then finally I recovered and it was it was horrible. How did you recover? Did it just appear back in your no, head? No, 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 no. We we just we just, you just dropped, moved on. We just moved on and I'm so where you had something where I had where I had a toe hoed again but that was that was that was a a good uh, 90 seconds of hell so flash forward from that
0: to Ghostbird.
1: okay well uh, for some reason or another Barry invited me back to do a couple more plays at FGCU and um, the forgetful professor yeah 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 (laughs) Uh, and well he gave me a couple challenging roles and I and I really came through with that I mean he understood you know and and he was he was very uh, generous uh, but uh, Ghostbird started with one um, when, when the actors I mentioned, Caitlin Gravel, um, Phil Hoybeck, and uh, Brittany Brady. And um, both Caitlin and Brittany were English majors, so I knew them. Uh, we acted together, did plays at FGCU together, and um, did the 24 hour festival. And so I hung out with these younger people, and they were multi-talented. They could sing, they could dance, they could do all these things. I oh, uh, go back answering your question. I cannot sing, but and you do sing sometimes. I do probably. sing okay. sometimes. <laughs> I do. No, no. I, and in public, I have. Uh, I mean, I've I've had to sing in plays and sure. be the solo and just be horrible at it, but make a joke of it. Um, so we we. Um, we wanted to do something more as a performance troupe, and mm-hmm. we talked about uh, putting together Ghostbird almost in a way that you put together a rock and roll band. Well, let's get together. Um, maybe we can do some things at the Sydney Byrne Davis Arts You're, Center.
0: You guys are like by nature um, theater
1: less. You guys are on location for the yeah, yeah, yeah. show, right? Right, 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 right. right. We're, we're site specific, so we do our shows now at different venues that that aren't that aren't um, uh, regular theater venues right. makes sense when you say put
0: it together like a band because right. a band doesn't get together and say okay we're a band and this is the place where we're going to play all our gigs exactly exactly right. you go
1: to a new house and you yeah. check it out and you're you your guests there you don't know you don't know exactly what you're going to get when you when you arrive and um, and so uh, but we would um, we would gain, we'd work with other artists and uh, people in other disciplines and we put together these performances so it's almost like a performance art group. Uh, initially. I, I happened to do some plays. Uh, and we started that in 2012, and we've been keeping it going ever since. Uh, we get some grants, and uh, we have a small core audience that seem to get us. We tend to do a little bit of experimental work, uh, and we we do these things that are just really, really, we hope are evocative and beautiful. And actually, almost all our plays, not all, but a good number of them, involve writing original music and songs. And I often write songs for our our group. How
0: would the college student you think about you being a co-founder of a theater
1: troupe? Um... (laughs) <laughs> he, he would be more shocked by the fact that I was actually performing. Right. Um, the the behind-the-scenes stuff, he would totally get because, you know, writing plays, that's not that much different than writing poetry, really. Yeah. It's spoken word, right? You know, so it's it's not that big of a leap. Well, but, and I've seen you do, po- you know, poetry readings. Right. And it's all, it was very performative. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I mean, there's the whole spoken word movement thing and you kind of um, – there, there's an element of that that is truly performative. You just have the script in front of you. But the idea of, a, of acting, um, I didn't I didn't know how to get to that exactly gotcha. at that time. Alright, let's move on to your second song. What do you got for us? Okay, let's see. Oh my gosh. Okay, so the song is the Cocteau Twins and it's uh, Musette and Drums. Musette and Drums, right. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Uh, and, um, this is from their Head Over Heels album? Yep, 1983. Album? Okay, thank you for that. Um, this story takes place—this is a long story. It's a two-part story, so I'm going to beg your patience here. Um, this, this takes place in uh, uh, 1993. I already, uh, so from my time as a high school kid, I get my college degree, I get my MFA degree, I get my PhD degree, I land my first, I get married in that time, I have a baby in that time, I end up teaching at this uh, Baptist University in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And at an incredibly young age, I'm 29 when I get my first professorship, and um you know, I'm I'm publishing my poems. Things are are great, um, and two years into my job at at, at the school, um, so it's 1990, I win a national endowment for the arts creative writing fellowship. A, a really big deal. It was the first time I qualified even to apply for it. You have to have so many publications just to right, apply. Right, right. And every two years, they give these uh, fellowships twenty thousand dollars to about twenty twenty five poets nationwide. It's uh, very prestigious. You, you, yeah. you don't even dream getting it until you have had a couple of books. And it was even before I had my first book published. Um, that was 1990. It was the year of the Jesse Helms Amendment, the whole controversy surrounding the NEA uh, Roger Mapplethorpe and his homo- right. homoerotic photography Yeah, yeah. Um, people like Tim Miller and Karen Finley were performance poets and they got um, tagged because of their homoerotic verse and um, so there was all these controversies surrounding it at the time I got it um, and so it was in the news and um, I was interviewed by the local paper, the Nashville Tennessean uh, and I had my picture taken in my office, and, on, and we talked about my poetry. We talked about the controversy. Um, at one point, uh, the reporter asked me, uh, with, You know, the reporter didn't read any of my poems or anything like that, but it wasn't that kind of story. But she asked me, Well, what would Jesse Helms think of your poems? And I, I kind of joked and said, Well, I don't think he would like any of them. You know, I don't know how much poetry he actually reads. Um, would he be offended by any of your poems? Uh, i I don't know. Uh, probably, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, uh, so, I kind of, so it was just like one moment. Um, so on, on the Sunday paper, in the on the front page is my smiling face on the on the front page of the uh, entertainment section. And there was a headline there, Belmont Professor uh, uh, writes controversial poetry. And the first line was, "Some of Jim Brock's poems would offend Jesse Helms." <laughs> <laughs> so I'm at the, you know, Belmont this Baptist School. It's a really wonderful university now, but back then it was still uh, a, a university associated with the Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, the whole board members were, um, you know, half of them were Baptist pastors, and so they read this article on Sunday morning about this. Uh, so the president of the university is getting all these phone calls. Um, he calls me into his office on Monday morning the following day, and he has the article there on his desk. Um, the provost is there, and uh, they we have a discussion about my poetry. And um, he says, I am here to defend academic freedom and to try to save your job. At that time, my wife then, my ex-wife now, uh, was just on a tenure-line job there. We had a one-year-old baby. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, I got to do anything to keep this job. Um, So he said, we will need to vet your palms. We don't want to. Read all your poems. We don't have time. You know, they didn't want to read them all. Uh, but, but just the poems that you published. Um, and so, I gave him the poems. You know, copies from magazines and stuff like that. The provost had to read them. That was the only. That was the only good thing. It's this guy who probably never read a poem since. Right. You know, and he was like a former football player, and you know, so I was like good. I'm going to give you some more poems to read. <laughs> you know, and um, two days later. They had an emergency board meeting to talk about me, and uh, I had another meeting. It was just me and the president, and he said I was able to save your job, but we couldn't. I could not talk about this one poem. There was one poem on his desk. He had a beautiful, immaculate desk, <laughs> but there was this one piece of paper, and he was pointing his finger down, thumping on that on that piece of paper, and saying, "This does not exist." And I was going, "What do you mean?" And he said, "As a." Belmont University professor, you cannot have this poem. And then he said, I'm all for academic freedom. And it, the poem was uh, this thing that I wrote, actually in response to the whole Jesse Helms controversy, it was dedicated to Jesse Helms. And in the poem, I quote lines by Walt Whitman about two male lovers. And, they're putting a con- and I added some lines about one putting a condom on the other. They were practicing safe sex. Um and so we went back and forth on it and he just said basically I cannot associate myself with this poem as a Belmont professor. That was how he could live with it. And so we had this sort of tacit agreement. After that, I I was I, I felt like a total fraud. I felt as a poet, I felt I had capitulated. Um You mean you think
0: if you were a true poet, you would have stood up for it, and you would have said, "Screw you! Exactly. I'm out of here!" Right, 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 right. I'm going to take my no, wife no, no, and no, one-year-old, no. and we're going to go. All
1: my all my poet friends from my grad school days, you know, and we're all academic poets. We're not that badass, right? <laughs> you know, we going. You know, would you know what? You know, would women do that? No, he he would he would quit on the spot. He would throw it in there in his face, you know. And I was a company man, and uh, it did all this. Um, you know, inward. I mean, I knew at the time. I mean, it wasn't like I was fooling myself. I knew exactly what I was doing. It was, it was, it was uh, a contract I, I I was making, and I thought I can be a grown up here, you know, do right by my family and everything. And of course, what happened is it turned inward on me. I I became depressed. I became a lousy husband. Um, I wasn't any fun to anyone. I wasn't a very good teacher. Um, so it was just ah this. All this toxic stuff, um, and so my we separated. We got a divorce. I don't want to go into the whole soap opera of that. That's its own story. Um, but just very sad, very sad. And but I remained at 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 the school, and you know, you know, there's adultery and other stuff. So I'm I have a girlfriend, and this is a couple years after that, and. Um, uh, she works for MCA records. So we go out to all these parties, uh, getting to meet all the, you know, the local, you know, celebrities and everything like that. So, you know, I got to go to parties where there were Katie Lang and Lyle Lovett. And that was, that was just, that was just so cool. And she was a pretty young thing. It was like this frivolity and she was an artist and she was encouraging me to get back to writing again. You know, I hadn't, you know, I, I was writing a little bit, but it wasn't, wasn't going anywhere. So, but at this time, I get called in by the dean of the school, and he has, um, uh, well, he, he, has, he has the handbook of, of uh, faculty conduct. And he says, he, I have a meeting. He says, um, Jim, I understand that you're fornicating. <laughs> he kind of just threw it out there like that <laughs> and I didn't know how to respond because I actually had something of a friendship with him and I wanted to be kind of a smart ass and say like uh, uh, yes <laughs> and, and uh, but he was very serious and very grim about it and um, you know, he he read the section of the of of the uh, conduct code for faculty, and you know it was this very generalized statement. But you know, basically, being good Christians, and then there was a list of things. And he kind of left it at that, and he said, "We will be back with you." Um, right after that meeting, went to my chair, said, "Can you write me a letter of recommendation?" He knew what was going on. Right. Uh, and he said, "Fine, yeah, I can absolutely no problem um, and 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 so it goes down a path where they're going to give me a choice a variety of choices and i i say i'm not going I'm not going to do any of this i'm I'm cutting out I quit in the middle of the semester I resign um, and I I, I, I I take out all my um uh, all my retirement money, my pension, give that to my ex-wife, or, okay, this is child support for a year. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Uh, my girlfriend at that time, um, you know, stayed stay in Nashville for a while, but I didn't have a job, was running out of money. She said, why don't you go to uh, Redding, California, where my family is, um, Northern California. Uh, she has a brother who runs these Christmas tree lots. It's her stepfather's business. They have a Christmas tree farm way up north. And, you know, get out of here and kind of- clear, New scene. Yeah, new scene. And, and maybe why don't you write something while you're out there, you know, just like that. So I, I go to California, go to this Christmas tree lot. I'm there for about two weeks and there isn't really enough work for me to do. Um, so I go up to the cabin and I, I spend a whole month there. Uh, and i 'm writing I actually ended up writing the basis for my first book of poetry about this mining disaster in idaho because she said you've got to write something really important, really powerful um and I'm, and i'm i'm just tearing up a storm, you know kind of refining you know finding myself again as being a poet it's also she's um, she's also getting rid of me because i 'm depressing to be around <laughs> with, and so i 'm also knowing like oh. This isn't going to go anywhere, you know. This is also going to be a, a, a relationship that just dies. Um, it it had its own life, and so you know, I was kind of emotionally doing with that. I mean, we stayed together for a few months after that, and everything, but it was a, it was kind of a dead end. And, and just you know, someone I you know just think the world of, but she she also knew that I was kind of these damaged goods. But she cared enough for me to kind of push me along. Okay, so for this song. Uh, When I was driving up on Highway 97 to Tennant, California, this is where the cabin is. This is way north, California, um, by the Oregon border. And it's a little bit like Idaho because you're in the high, um, uh, on this sort of high plateau of lava fields. You have Mm. all these, you know, you have Mount Shasta and Mount Lassen, these uh, extinct volcanoes, and it's this sort of otherworldly, um, landscape that you're going through with pine trees, um, and it's winter, and there's like four feet of snow on each side of the road. And uh, I'm driving. Her her brother gives me his uh, Honda Civic. It's about a 1985 model, two door. It has a bumper sticker in the back saying, "I am a big." Dick, <laughs> so I'm passing people and they're looking at me, you know, like, and I'm looking at them. What? What? You know, right, and, uh, right. And so I'm having this weird trip, and he only has two cassette tapes in his in his car. I pull them out. One is uh, R.E.M.'s "Automatic for the People" that just came out, um, you know. But then there was this Cocteau Twins, and this was 19, you know in '83, and it, and it brought me back to. Grad school days, because I listened to them then, and they were this cool Scottish band. You couldn't understand any of the lyrics, um, uh, but there, it, it, it was like this um, transportation back to a time where I was a real artist, and I was coming back to it then. And then this particular song um, that talks about tragedy ending and Am I Pretty Enough, there's this kind of garbled... Um, You know uh, Liz Frazier's voice is this very um, uh, very dense uh, expression of sound and even though I couldn't understand the lyrics and you know you print them out you still don't understand them that (laughs) that that it's 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 about this emotional evocation and you know um, with reference to Juliet and and tragedy it's like life is short you really need to make something of that, so that kind of binds into all of it.
0: All right, uh, what's it
1: called again? Uh, Musette and drums. Okay, let's listen to it.
0: When was the last time you listened to that song uh, before preparing for this show? Is that something you uh, is that a band that you listen to in life, or is that something that you had to oh. kind of
1: harken back to? Hmm. Um. Yeah, it's something that I I you know I I don't have that tape. Um that tape. <laughs> that tape. <laughs> uh so I uh I I had to dig it up again. I mean of course what's beautiful now is you can you can dial up Of course, of course. And, you know, so, but uh, upon first but,
0: listening to it again though, right. was it was it transformative
1: in your time shifted head? Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean no I mean what's beautiful about this is I mean it's it's all nostalgia. These right. these stories, these songs. They take you back to that time, that place. I'm when I was listening to it now, I was just I was just remembering that road because I was driving it, it was clear blue skies. And the lining of the trees and the snow and this black, black rock and 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 feeling affirmed again, you know, feeling like I can be you know, I'm in my early 30s then and oh I can be back in my early 20s and be a a legit artist and there was just this exhilaration and and being on this two-lane road where you know if I got too exhilarated with it I could die you know (laughs) that's kind of like the the other factor that brought me back to the first song was you know uh, these these dangerous kind of back roads and everything like that Uh, one wrong turn and you know that's that.
0: Did you ever have to make another choice in your career as a poet and as an artist between, you know, artistic integrity in your mind and uh, some greater force that was trying to
1: push you off the rails? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, we'll get to that to the third song. And there's there's another song I could have thrown in there as well. Okay, so
0: so you just said you don't have that tape. So how do you listen to music generally in your life? Um, Or how much music do you listen to?
1: Oh, actually, uh, all the time. I'm I'm um, married uh, to a dancer, um, so she has her. I mean, a, a lot of it's her music that she. Um, I mean, she's no longer a professional dancer or anything like that, but she'll she'll have her morning routines, and mm-hmm. we'll have the songs. And it'll what's be, it coming out of? Um, we have we have. Uh, in every room, we have a small. Um, it's it's CD mostly. Okay. Uh, so uh, she but has you, a huge CD collection. But you've got speakers throughout speakers, the house, Speakers, right? And we have separate music systems and all of that. Yes. Okay. Yeah, Are yeah. you
0: doing any like Bluetooth stuff? Alexa, play this or anything uh, like that? Not
1: not Alexa because she she frightens me. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, we have we have our playlists. We have we have things digitalized and all of that. So but we'll have to dial it up manually. You know, pushing you know the. My phone. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. You've got one last song. What is it? Um, oh, oh, God. Um, okay. Yeah. I go way out of, out of it. And another song where you can't really understand any of the lyrics almost. This is Oh Death by uh, Charlie Patton. Uh, this is something that he recorded. He's a Delta Blues, Mississippi uh, guitarist from. Uh, he died in the, the mid 1930s. And this was recorded, I think, a few months before his death in 1934. And Bertha Lee is, his, um, um, is the other person here hear in the song. Um, we're, we're now leaping to 2008, 2009. Okay. About, about the time I start doing the acting thing mm-hmm. in theater. Um, I'm about 50 years old then. Uh, well into my career at FGCU, I might have just become a full professor having arrived. I had published four books of poetry. I was the real deal. Um, I was in an environment where my poetry was supported by my colleagues in my university. I gave readings all around the country. Um, and I was on a sh- on a trajectory then of, you know continuing to publish a book of poetry every five years. Maybe one of them, if they aligned right, would garner some big national recognition right. and uh, and at least uh, if nothing uh being something of a uh, Minor national poet, and uh, at the end of my career, when I turned seventy, I would have a collected volume out, and you know, be be uh, venerated. Right. Uh, you know, if I was lucky, I would get some of my poems in the Norton Anthology of Poetry, right. and it would last for generations. And I got. It seemed like becoming an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to have my poems etched in stone, to be taught in these universities. And again, my poems were being taught and stuff like that. And I would show and read and perform my poems. But it, it, it seemed predictable. It seemed like a dead end. And so all these things kind of came back to me. I mean, it was, what was healthy about it was, okay, there wasn't this external force coming down on me, you know, not a university, not um, um, uh, expectations of me following a certain kind of career path. This was something for me that was, well, I'm 50 years old. I could continue doing this. I'm kind of enjoying this theater thing. I like the acting bit. Um, And so what's happening also at this time is I'm with an with a friend, uh, who's going through a rough patch. He's a he's, he, he writes. He's, he's an artist. He's someone I respect entirely. I don't want to give names because I want to respect this person's privacy too. But he was going through a particular rough patch, divorce, um, just didn't know what he was going to do with his life. I mean, he wasn't going to commit suicide or anything like that, but just in a difficult position professionally and personally. And so... I was because of the divorce. I was like his only friend. You know, we're the same age. I go to his place, drive over to Cape Coral. I have to like someone a lot to go to Cape Coral. Yeah, amen. And, you know, you know, this has got to be a damn good reason. So I go to his place. Uh, you know, makes good dinners. We drink some wine. We have some whiskey. We just we just have these. And it kind of takes me back a little bit to my time with Brad and Greg, you know, mm-hmm. my, my high school buddies, you know. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just guy talk and we talk about literature and art and being a writer and, you know, um, and he knows about my doing the acting thing. And so I, I, I talked to him about my frustrations about where I am as a writer. I, you know, I'm listening to his problems and everything like that. And he said, well, do you have to? Do you have to die being a poet? No, I I, I don't have to. He said, well, you know, there are other writers who've taken these leaps, you know, And because I started talking about maybe writing a play and doing that, but not having – usually when I bring that up to other people, they think of it in terms of, oh, you're going to write a movie script or, oh, this is going to be on Broadway. And I was talking about this in terms of doing things that, you know, You know, maybe Barry Cavan might do for me or, you know, this was before even Ghostbird started. But I'm hanging around with also these young kids, Caitlin, Phil, and Brittany, and they're doing all this creative stuff. And I thought this is maybe where I can be renewed. And and then professionally it was also – uh, I was already already a full professor. I didn't have to prove myself to anything. I have a chair, Kim Jackson, who understands all of that. Who said, "You know, this is cool. Go go off in your own direction." If I were t- teaching at another university, it would be, "What are you doing? You can't do that. You right. you have you know this is where you've established your national reputation. You got to right, you, yeah, you're you're right. So so this was a change where it was like no risk other than giving up what I had always done. Right. And, and trying something. Personal comfort. Yeah, something flavor. new. And so the plays that I've been writing um, since then have been for this very small theater company. I have no intention of ever publishing them, no intention of, of having another theater company produce it. Uh, theater, to me, performance is all about this moment. You give it to the world and then it disappears it's not a text that you can come back to and read and read again, and 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 it's this generous offering that you work really, really, really hard to produce. Um, so I'm at my friend's house, and we're talking about this, these things about the thermal nature of theater, and you know, he, he and almost like my girlfriend from way back, and you know, uh, in California, just said, "Well, do it," you know, and. And you realize it's not that hard to do. And so I was driving. This is, again, a specific moment. <laughs> I'm, driving it and it, I'm driving my own Nissan 1995 red pickup truck. No air conditioning. It's my Idaho truck. Um, it's about to die. <laughs> uh, and it has a cassette deck in it. So it's antiquated already then, you know, 10 years ago. And I'm driving over at the Cape Coral Bridge. And I, have, I still have this tape of, of Charlie Patton's songs. And as I was driving over the bridge, this song, Oh Death, came on. And it's something of the same song as Melanie's song, almost the same song as the Cocteau Twin song about um, I'm not long for this world. And, and it, it just reminded me of what's at stake here, you know? I mean, some, some, on some level, it's inconsequential. If you're going to write a play and it disappears into the ether, it's nothing. But it's also simultaneously everything.
0: Let's hear it. This is O oh Death by Charlie Patton as Jim drives across the Cape Coral Bridge.
1: Lord, know my time ain't long. Yeah, you know, it's just, just that.
0: Uh, what time of year was it? Um, I ask because I'm wondering if you were comfortably on conditioned or uncomfortably on oh, conditioned. Oh,
1: it was it was uh, <laughs> this was winter time, so it was very. Comfortable. Oh, it was beautiful. So it was then. beautiful. Yeah, it was going over the bridge at night, and uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's also just the uh, uh, the this song kind of being a miracle being produced anyway, because it's just months before he, he dies. Mm-hmm. He knows he's dying you know, of some kind of heart disease. His, he's, he's in horrible shape physically from the illness, or what he's suffering from. Um, he's with his eighth wife, <laughs> <laughs> who's this remarkable gospel singer, singer, and it's just the two of them, and his uh, long, uh, his bottleneck guitar. And um Just saying, like, okay, I'm going to keep on doing this till I die,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and and so in part that's what ri- any writing for me is doing, you know, um, is is about, and whether it's the poetry or the playwriting, um, and and so the, you know just this just this sort of defiance of of, of creation uh, that you're going to keep on doing it no matter what is uh, inspiring, and and that's you know um, what's you know. Beyond just a message of the song itself, as almost this um, uh, almost gospel-inspired song about death, but it's also um, about this resilience that we all have, or if we choose to tap into that. Yeah.
0: Do you still write some poetry for yourself, or have you left it sort of off the table for Uh, the time being? It's
1: off the table professionally, is what I tell people. So I'm not. I'm not actively publishing my poetry. Um, I, uh, I'll write poems that might become monologues and plays. I might write poems that are standalone onto themselves. Uh, sometimes I write occasional poems or I have to just respond to the world because, you know, the poem is easier to do than like, okay, I can write a play about that. Well, you know, nine months later, I might have something, a poem. It's a weekend later and I'm good with it. Yeah.
0: Um, is there a song that you will always turn off <laughs> who comes on the radio.
1: Oh yes, yes, yes. Um oh dear me. Um always always uh not that I listen oh gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah, I mean there's several. I mean it'll be <laughs> it'll be like um uh, uh oh god. Okay, Lee Greenwoods um What's that song, America? Stand Up America. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That goes, that's, that's another. Do you am- listen
0: to the kind of stations that risk the exposure of that song?
1: Not, not a lot, not a lot, <laughs> but, but sometimes, well, no, no. Uh, actually, I like, I like some country western stuff. I mean, really, because I lived in Nashville and everything like that. And my parents, I mean, the one music we had when we were young, we'd go up to this, um, up where our cabin was, there was a lodge, and they had a Saturday, night, a Saturday night stomp, and it was like my parents would get a pitcher of beer. They would drink it. We'd get a pitcher of Coke. We'd play pool. They'd be on the dance floor to Conway Twitty or uh, 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 um, uh, Jimmy Rogers or something like that, really twangy and old, and they danced. It was miraculous. So, you know, I kind of you know, there were there, there, not anymore, not likely. You know, right. and that's such an old song, but it, it was so dominant at one point. Yeah, it was pervasive. And, yeah, everywhere. And it was just, it was just like, oh gosh, it, the worst jingoism possible, the obligatory patriotism of that, and it just being a horrible. I mean, it's just bad. Over, you know, the the whole Nashville sound thing. And you just want to, yeah. That that that's one where I violently turn it off. Um, I mean, I might, you know, do damage to the radio.
0: Right. Uh, Last question. If you can uh, perform on stage with any person, living or dead, who would it be? Wow. Perform.
1: As an actor. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um... Oh geez, uh, just to see just to see her work would be Helen Mirren. Oh, okay, and just stare at her. <laughs> I mean, that's we're talking about a very old lifelong crush. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just to be in yeah. her radiant presence. Yeah, 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 and just just to see her work and just yeah, I've 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 loved her um, since uh, the late seventies. So that's kind of like a lifelong thing. Just as uh, just my here as an actor, but also someone who's resplendently beautiful in my, from my perspective. Right on. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. Well, that is all the time we have. Jim, okay. do you have
0: any final thoughts to
1: leave us with? Um. Yeah, I, I would. Um. Uh, no, actually, actually, I have a question for you. Okay. You know, for my, okay. Okay. I'll so, try to so, try to so, do my best. So, so, and you can be totally evasive here. Yeah. Um, um, Holy cow. So this is like the 20 some odd time you've done this. Mm-hmm. And so that means you've listened to 70 some odd songs. Mm-hmm. And you are very professional, sir. And it could have happened right when I was doing my little thing. But you know, have you when somebody's come up with a song? And, and I know you respect and love the, every person, but You're like, oh my God, this is horrible. You know, I would say no.
0: I would say that um, I have appreciated every song, I've learned a lot about the need to appreciate music. (laughs) Um, And I don't mean like, just because I mean, I've had quite a few people who really talked about, you know, maybe I used to be snarky about music, but I realized, you know, it's art. We should love all art, right? And so I think I've been broadened in that way, and I've listened to definitely a lot of songs I would have never heard otherwise. Um, And and I'm just going to leave it with this. We have have a a production intern now, uh, D.P. Workman, and he has gone through every episode of Three Song Stories, and he's created Spotify playlists for all the guests, and we have one master Spotify playlist that we're about to put on the website. So we're oh, basically cool. creating a three-song stories radio station with the, <laughs> with the guests' choices. How so cool. that's my answer.
1: Okay, okay. Appreciate that. I really do appreciate that because yeah. there would be some time when I go like... What? what? Yeah. Is well, this? And, and just
0: I mean, as a final thought, I, I go out and find the music and I prepare it for the show, but I don't listen to it. So unless it's a song I'm familiar with, like those songs I just listened to with you, right, are all versions I'd never heard before. So I listened to those all for the first time today. Oh, cool, so, cool, cool. Anyway, thank okay. you, Jim,
1: so much. Thank you, thank you, Mike. It's just, just grand, just grand. Thank you.
0: We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chen Kui is the show's co-creator and producer. Our online content producer is Tara Callaghan. Our executive producer is Chris Duffus. Our theme music was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio up in St. Pete. For my parting tune this week, I'm going back to Dawn Breaking on Fort Myers Beach at the end of 2011. I'd left my job as Morning Edition host at WGCU earlier that year, so was up before the sun every day whether I liked it or not, but I mostly did like it. Nothing like a sunrise sometimes. I remember this morning extra clear because I have evidence. I'd recently gotten my first digital SLR that could shoot video and had been experimenting. That morning I shot a sort of off-the-cuff music video using this song. I propped the camera up on the dash of my old Jeep Cherokee as I drove south on Astero Boulevard toward the end of the island as this song played. Besides having left my longtime job in radio, I'd also just left my first real relationship that I'd been in since parting ways with my daughter's mother more than three years before. So that newly ended love was still swirling in my mind as this song played as the world slowly awoke. This is Pamphleteer by The Weaker Thans. Great poet, this guy. By the way, enterprising listeners can find the video I made on my YouTube channel if you're interested in sharing that moment with me. I'm Mike Canary. Keep listening. GK. any final thoughts, and can you give them to me in a robot German accent no i I can't there, there's uh there's there's not enough alcohol in this building okay.